Hebrews chapter 3 is where we're going to be this afternoon in our time of study. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, and I am going to preach a sermon that I have entitled, Today, Today, Do Not Harden Your Heart. Follow with me, Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. One day in the 20th century, Dr. Oberman was a professor, a very prestigious professor from the University of Arizona. He was lecturing on history and lecturing on the Reformation And at one point in the lecture, the very crowded and the very busy lecture hall, Dr. Oberman became very and unusually and visibly frustrated. It wasn't because of misbehavior that he became frustrated. It wasn't because the class was lacking attention. It wasn't because the class disrespected him. That's not why he became frustrated. But he became frustrated because everyone in the lecture hall was so young to him. I mean, they were in their late teens and they were in their early 20s. And this this aging professor said at one point, young men, you will never understand the generations long ago. Why? Dr. Oberman said, because young people, you go to bed every night and you're confident that you're going to wake up healthy the next morning. But he said, in generations past, it, it wasn't always that way. He said, in generations past, people thought that every day could be their last. I mean, they had no antibiotics, they had no modern medicine, every day was a gift to them. You, you didn't know if you would, in fact, wake up the next morning to see another day. There is an urgency about today. There is an urgency about today. Today, you need to hear this. Why? Because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Only, only the perfect imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is found in the gospel can deliver weary and hurting souls. It is only the substitution of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, taking my sin, quenching God's wrath, that is my only hope and your only hope. It is only the wrath-quenching sacrifice of Jesus in my place and his perfect life and his victorious resurrection that is credited to me that gives hope in the days in which we live. But you have to hear and you have to respond because you're not guaranteed 
tomorrow. So don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Now, I absolutely love the book of Hebrews, and I hope you do as well, as we are studying this great, wonderful book together. It is such a, a, a glorious book that honors and it, it extols and it proclaims the glory of Jesus in, in, in nearly every verse, showing that Jesus is better. Showing that he's better. He is supreme. He is preeminent. He is glorious. And what does the author continually say? Look to him. Consider him. Believe upon him. Hold fast to him. Fix your attention upon him. Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. We have learned that Jesus is better than the angels because he's God. He's God. Chapter 1 showed us that he is divine. Chapter 2 showed us that he is truly man. And then the end of chapter 2 showed that he made propitiation. Jesus died. He took the full weight of God's wrath, not for his sin, but for all who believe in him. He's better. What angel ever did that? And now in chapters 3 and 4, the author is making the case that Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the Old Testament. He's better than the greatest prophet that Israel had, Moses. But right here, in chapter 3, we saw last week that we are to consider Jesus in verse 1. We saw that, that Jesus is better than Moses, even though Moses was a great, he was a faithful, he was an obedient servant in the house of God. Jesus is far, far greater because he's the son of God over the house of God. At this point in the sermon, it's almost as if Octor or the author or the preacher in verse 7 is going to turn from his teaching and lecturing to exposition and exhortation and application. He wants to give a warning. He wants you to be aware, Israel, Israel rebelled. And Israel was presumptuous, and Israel tested the Lord, and Israel, many of them died in the wilderness. Don't be like them. Learn. Now, we understand warnings, don't we? Hebrews 3 and 4 is a warning text. We, we understand warnings. We, we read about it in the Bible. Remember Lot? Hurry, hurry, and get out of here before God's fire falls on Sodom. Remember Noah, the preacher of righteousness. No doubt he's building the ark and he's preaching the gospel and he's telling people, you need to hurry and get on the ark before you're flooded and you drown. Remember the angel who said to Joseph after the baby Jesus had been conceived and born, the angel said, hurry and take the child and flee to Egypt because Herod the king wants to kill the baby. Remember David, the king, who was running and hiding in a cave from that maniac Saul who wanted to kill him. We get warning signs, don't we? We, we see them all the time. We understand that big orange warning sign when it says road closed ahead. We understand the warning sign when it says mine field ahead. We get the warning signs. We, we understand that. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Notice the warning. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Look at verse 13. 
Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 15. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. I mean, there's an urgency to this today, today, today. Listen, today, not tomorrow, today, today. Our passage before us is chapter three, beginning in verse seven. This is summing up what we looked at last week because of the word therefore. See that there in verse 7? Therefore, in light of all that I told you earlier in chapter 3, that you are to consider Jesus. He is greater than Moses. Verse 6, how do you know that you belong to him if you hold fast? If you continue, if you persevere, if you're abiding in him and bearing fruit, if you hold fast the confidence and the boast of your hope firm until the end. Therefore, in light of that, he says, it's like what the Holy Spirit says. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. As when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Our entire passage that we're looking at today is essentially a long quotation from Psalm 95. So what we are looking at in Hebrews 3 is essentially Psalm 95 in verses 7 to the end of the psalm, Psalm 95. And yet in verse 7, do you see it in your Bible? Notice how the author introduces the quotation. He says, the Holy Spirit says. Teaches a little bit of bibliology, doesn't it? That God is the primary author of scripture. This is divine inspiration. We we read that the Holy Spirit is the one who spoke this back in Psalm 95. And yet there's also the human agency because David is the one who actually wrote that psalm down. And so we understand from 2 Peter chapter 1 that it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who is carrying along the hands of the writers so that everything they wrote was perfectly guided and governed by God. We also learn from verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, that the Bible is powerfully alive. The Bible is alive because God is alive. And if the Bible is God's word, guess what? The Bible is living. It is alive. It is active. And it's powerful. We also notice from verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, that the Bible is the ultimate authority. I'm not the ultimate authority. No human court is the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. And how he's revealed himself in his word. And all of that right here in these opening few words, it's like the the preacher, Octor, he wants the congregation to know Jesus is better. I want you to fix your eyes upon him. Chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus, he's better than Moses. You need to hold on to him, but you need to hear an Old Testament proof. You need to hear a motivation. You need to to hear another persuasion from God in the Old Testament today. 
today. Don't harden your hearts. My goal this afternoon with you is to allow God, the Holy Spirit, to speak to each one of you. And I trust and believe that he will by his word. And very simply, today, don't harden your hearts. If I could sum up the entire sermon in one little phrase, here's what the whole point of the passage is. Don't be like faithless Israel. Don't be like faithless Israel. Don't be like them. What we're going to do as we look at Hebrews chapter 3 is I want to give you, and here's the sermon outline that I'm going to walk through with you. I'm going to give you four urgent pastoral imperatives. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you these imperatives because they come out of the text. I'm going to give you imperatives because God is calling everyone to action. This isn't an intellectual lecture. This is not an an exercise of the mind saying, "Ah, I believe it or I don't or I like it or I agree with it. This is God saying you need to hear and heed and act upon what you hear. Four urgent pastoral imperatives as we learn from Israel of old. Here's the first. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't be hard-hearted. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. You see it in verses 7 and 8. It's right there in our passage, which is quoting Psalm 95. Don't harden your heart today. I mean, the door of opportunity lies open before you. One day, today's door of opportunity will be gone. It'll be past. It'll be over. Four times, interestingly, we read in the Bible, today if you hear God's voice. Once in Psalm 95 and three times here in the book of Hebrews. It's like God really wants you to hear today. Today. Now, verse Seven tells us today if you hear God's voice, meaning from Psalm 95, don't harden your hearts. Notice the plural there, the plural. You, this is the psalmist, the, the, the author rather, speaking to each and every person in the congregation. As you hear God's voice through the reading and preaching of the word in the Bible, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Let's just all have clarity together that God speaks nowadays. He sure does. God is very clear in his speaking, and he speaks by and with his word. God never speaks apart from his word. If you don't have chapter and verse that you can put your finger on, God has not spoken it. He hasn't spoken in. But but you hear him from the word of God. The author is quoting Psalm 95. He's got his, his finger, as it were, on Psalm 95. And he says, today, you're hearing the voice of God from Psalm 95. Don't harden your heart. The Greek word harden your heart, it means to be stubborn. It means to be callous. You know, if you have a callus on your finger or on your palm or somewhere on your body, that callus, it's been rubbed so much and maybe it's sort of an unfeeling part of your body. The, 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 the author is saying, don't let that be your heart toward the Lord. 
Don't be, don't be unaffected by the word. Don't be hard-hearted. And somebody says, well, I understand that, but, well, how do I, how do, I do that? I mean, how, how might someone be hard-hearted? Well, by hearing and disobeying the word. There's many people who hear the word, but they don't do it. Another way that somebody could be hard-hearted is by disregarding and just simply forgetting God's word. It's almost like the, the parable of the soils when somebody hears it and they receive it with joy and there's a, there's a great celebration initially, but then they fall away. Another way, third, that somebody might harden their heart is by complaining and, and by grumbling and just discontentment toward the Lord. That's an act of hardening the heart toward the Lord. Another way that someone could harden their heart is by remaining in a state of unbelief. And the author is saying today, today, if you hear God's voice through the word of God, don't harden your heart. Don't be hard hearted. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you like this. I think we can all relate to this. Suppose you never had an alarm clock before, and I, as a good friend, give you one of the loudest alarm clocks that I can find, and you set it to four o'clock tomorrow morning. Now, the first day that that alarm goes off at four in the morning, it's going to scare you to death. I mean, you're going to jump out of bed, you're going to be awake, you're going to be alert, you're going to nearly jump out of your skin, you're not going to need coffee that day, you're so alert and awake. The second week, the second week, it's going to take a little bit more than just one ring to wake you up. You're going to get used to it. And then maybe the third week after that, it rings a little bit longer before you shut that thing off. And then soon enough, you're pulling the pillow over your head and you're just sleeping while that thing is ringing on and on and on. You can relate. Some of you can relate to that. What's the point of that? The first time you hear it, your ears are sensitive. And it wakes you immediately. But then by listening over and over and over, you almost get to the point where you just sleep right through that thing as if it had never rung. And that's what happens to a person who's hard-hearted toward Christ. It's what happens to someone who's hard-hearted toward Christ. He just becomes dull to the word of God. He becomes insensitive to the word of God. He becomes oblivious to the word of God. He just becomes unaffected by the word of God. To delay. To delay, to delay is foolish. To delay is arrogant. To delay is dangerous. To delay is presumptuous, and we might even say from the book of Romans, to delay only increases your wrath in hell all the more. Don't delay coming to Christ. Don't delay hearing his word and trusting in him. What's the point of verses 7 and 8 in this first pastoral imperative? Don't be like faithless Israel. Act today. Act today. And don't be hard-hearted. Let me give you a second, a second pastoral imperative from these verses. 
The text says, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me. Here's the second pastoral imperative. Don't try and test God. Don't try and test God. Now, we're all aware of the verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, when Moses writes, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quoted that when he was tempted by the devil in Luke chapter 4 and verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 10, 9, Do not try, do not test the Lord. Many of them fell in the wilderness because of that. And that's what the the author is saying right here. Look in your Bible at verse 7. Today, if you hear God's voice, if you're hearing the word of God rightly, don't harden your heart as when they, like when Israel, provoked me, verse 8, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me when they saw my works for 40 years. Interesting. Hebrews is quoting Psalm 40, but Psalm 40 is alluding back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 17. Go there if you would. Exodus 17. Now, as you're turning there, let me sort of tell you where we are in Exodus 17. The people of Israel have come out of the land of Egypt. They have passed through the Red Sea. God miraculously parted the Red Sea. They walked through on dry land. And then they come to the wilderness and they Look at Exodus 17, all the congregation, verse 1, of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink, and therefore the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water that we may drink, and Moses said to them, why are you quarreling with me, and why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Verse 4, Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they're going to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of the rock that the people may drink. That's awesome. So Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place... Massah. And he named it Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? A similar account actually happens in Numbers chapter 20 when God tells Moses to speak to the rock, but he actually hits it. And back in Hebrews, if you turn back to Hebrews, what is the author doing? He's reminding the people through the psalm that God was tested. God was tried by his people when they grumbled and they quarreled for all those years in the wilderness. 
If you have your Bible open back to Hebrews chapter 3, do you see in verse 9 when it says, Where your fathers tried me by testing me and they saw my works for 40 years. 40 years? I mean, 40 years. Talk about the presumption of man to offend God, their maker, for 40 years. And oh, how patient God is. How patient God is. How willing God is for sinners to repent, to give them 40 years to repent and turn and trust in him. How patient God is. God says, don't don't try the Lord. Don't be like Israel. They tried the Lord. What does it mean to test the Lord? What does it mean to try the Lord? To test God means... That you act in such a way so as to force God to act for your benefit. When someone tests the Lord, it is forcing God to act for my deliverance. Really, testing the Lord, whatever people might say, well, I'm, 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 I'm just, I really believe in the Lord, and I just want to see God work here. No, you don't. It's not an act of faith. It's pridefully distrusting God. It's distrusting God's timing. It's forcing God to act like Gideon in the book of Judges. And the whole fleece event, that's a lack of trust in that whole episode. Or like the devil who told Jesus, why don't you jump off the top of the temple and no doubt God will send the angels and they will swoop down and they will carry and bear you up in their hands. That would be to force God to act. Jesus responds and says, oh no, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. Testing God to see whether or not God is faithful or trying to blackmail God by making him give you a sign on your timetable is a pagan notion that shows a lack of trust in God. God is always faithful. God is always reliable. Kevin DeYoung writes on this so helpful. He said, we don't need dreams. We don't need visions. We don't need fleeces. And we don't need signs to know God's will. God has already revealed his plan for our lives in the Bible. To love him with our whole heart. To obey his word. And after that, to do what we want. I like that. So when someone is testing God, when someone is trying God, it's almost like someone is demanding something of God as a way of determining whether or not God can be trusted. That's not an act of faith. It's putting God in a box to my agenda and my plan and my suspicions and my timing and my desires. Testing and trying God is always rooted in pride. And it's always rooted in unbelief. And it's always rooted in a lack of faith in God. So what's the better thing to do? Well, the text says in our Hebrews text, where your fathers tried me by testing me, well, what should we do? If we're going to learn from Israel, what should we do? The better way, trust God, study his word, believe it, and obey it. 
the author in Hebrews as he's preaching to the people. He wants the congregation of believers to not be like Israel of old, to learn from faithless Israel so that that they wouldn't fall into the sins of Israel of old. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't try and test God. Don't be like faithless Israel, where they saw what God did. They saw his works for 40 years, and they tried and they tested their God because of their unbelief. Don't be hard-hearted. Number two, don't try and test the Lord. Let me give you a third pastoral imperative, and it comes right here from our text in verse 10. You see it here. The third imperative is this. Don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant. Verse 10, God says, therefore, I was angry with this generation, and I said they always go astray in their heart because they did not know my ways. Wait, wait, wait. They tested God, and because of that, verse 10, therefore, God says, I was angry with that generation. If you have the ESV, you have provoked. I was provoked. Another contemporary translation has, I was indignant. That's probably the most faithful to the Hebrew, indignant. If you go back to Psalm 95, God says, I loathed this generation. The Hebrew word for anger, the Hebrew word for indignant, the Hebrew word for being provoked is the word, I was disgusted with them. It's like God saying, I'm outraged by what is shameful. My people have not trusted in me. They're hard-hearted. They've tried me. They're not believing in me. And God was indignant. He loathed them. He was disgusted with them. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I was angry. I loathed them, this generation. And I said, they always go astray in their hearts. What's the real root of all sin and all unbelief? The heart. It's the heart. The real root and the real core of all unbelief and really all sin is our hearts. And isn't it so ironic that right here in verse 10, the people wandered. They went astray while they were wandering in the wilderness. Isn't that ironic? It's almost like the author is saying, take heed that you're not wandering in your heart. Don't wander through life doing your own thing until you're fixed and you're settled in hell. Don't do it. Be careful. Be warned. And he says at the end of verse 10, they have not known my ways. It's not intellectual knowledge. Israel knew about God. The point is they didn't act upon what they knew. They refused to know me intimately. It's like one of my greatest fears is people who go to hell from the pew because they know about God, but they refuse an intimate relationship with Christ. 
It's like, it's like God is saying they refused to follow me humbly. They, they refused to follow me supremely. They refused to trust in me wholeheartedly. They remained ignorant. There's an account in the Bible, the book of uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 6, where God raises up the man Jeremiah to go to the, the, the people of Judah. And in Jeremiah 6, verse 16, Jeremiah says, stand by the way, and I want you to see the ancient path. It's the good way, and I want you to walk in the good way. And there you will find rest for your souls. But then the very next statement is they said, we will not walk in those ways. I mean, I mean, imagine, imagine how many hear and observe and they are within earshot of the good gospel of Jesus and the gospel of grace. It's like many don't plan to go to hell. Many don't, don't intend to go to hell, but they just sort of strayed and wandered from God. They were doing their own thing. They were following their heart. They were believing in themselves. They just lived life for their pleasures. They live for themselves. Maybe I can illustrate it like this. The story is told of an, of an old Baptist preacher. His name was George. And when he was a, a boy, he was saved as a young boy, and he invited one of the school bullies to church with him. And this school bully, this punk, went to church with him. They went to church together. And after the preacher was done in the church service, after the sermon, George looked over to the bully and George said to the bully, are you going to come to Jesus Christ now? And the bully said, leave me alone, George, not today. I'll go tomorrow. I'll come to church tomorrow, but not today. Well, the following day, George went to church and he looked around, but he didn't see the bully. He, he, he wasn't there. He was nowhere to be found in the gathering of the saints. Well, a few days after that, the bully still didn't show up to the church camp, and so George went to the home. And he knocked on the door of this school bully, and the mother of this bully came to the door, and George said, is, is, he, is he here? Can I speak to him? And the mother says, well, yes. Actually, when he went out with you that evening, he came back and fell very sick. He has pneumonia. The doctor says he may not make it. No one has been allowed to go in and see him. And George said, but may I go see him? May I go see him in his room? And so the mother allowed him to go in. And as George went into the bedroom with this school bully, as he got closer to that young man laying in his bed, his frightful lips were quivering and they were moving. And George couldn't make out what the bully was saying. And so when he got closer, he leaned down to the lips. And that school bully was saying, not tonight, George, not tonight. Go away from here, not today. Later on that afternoon, the school bully died. It's an amazing account and a true story of one who was ignorant. He heard, he understood, but he said, no, not today. Not today, not for me. I don't want it, not right now. 
And that's what verse 10 is saying. Therefore, Hebrews 3.10, I was angry with this generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. Many people hear the gospel. Many people hear the good news of Jesus. But sadly and tragically, many don't do anything with what they've heard. So the the lesson for us from this Psalm 95 that is being quoted in Hebrews 3, the lesson for us is don't be like ancient Israel. Don't be like faithless Israel. Learn from them. Take action today. Hear the gospel and believe in him today. What are the lessons? What, What are the urgent pastoral lessons? Well, the first... Don't be hard-hearted. The second, don't try and test God. Number three, don't be ignorant. Let me give you the fourth and the final. The fourth lesson that the author gives is don't be shut out of heaven. Don't be shut out of heaven. When God makes a promise, When God makes a covenant oath, I mean, you can be sure that that covenant oath is unshakable. You can be sure that it's unbreakable. Look at Hebrews 3, verse 11. God, God says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. This is God swearing. It's God making a covenant oath. It is God saying in his controlled, steady indignation because of the sins of men, he makes a covenant oath. Those people will never, never enter into my rest. You're in Hebrews 3. Look at the end of the chapter. Look at Hebrews 3 verse 18. We'll get here next week. But look at verse 18. To whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest? But to those who were disobedient. Who is an unbeliever? He's marked primarily by disobedience. Verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. They died. And what Octor, what the author is saying here is don't let Israel's story be your story. Take action so that you're not like Israel. I think there's countless millions of souls that are right now in hellfire because they delayed. Because they procrastinated. Because they did not take action and they heard the today, but they thought, I'll come to God tomorrow. And verse 11 says, they will not enter into my rest. They're going to wander in the wilderness. They're disobedient to me. They're not going to cross the Jordan River. They're not going to enter into the promised land of Canaan. They're not going to enter into the promised rest that I've I've given to them. You know what's so neat for me and you? We don't go to a place to find rest. We go to a person. We go to a person. 
And the warning is serious. The warning is serious. God shut Israel out from his rest in Canaan. Why? Because of their unbelief. Those who die unbelieving Jesus Christ are shut out of his salvation rest because of their unbelief. Heaven, heaven is the ultimate rest for every true believer. We see that in chapter four. We'll get there in a few weeks. But the passage has a, has a tone of urgency about it. The passage has a, has a tone of immediacy about it. The passage has a tone of, you need to listen today, right now, at this moment, this instant. Come to Jesus now. Hear it. Believe him and trust in him with all of your heart. You have Hebrews 3 open in your Bible. Go back with me, if you would, to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 is a wonderful chapter. Jesus has interacted with the disciples of John and encouraged John the Baptist. Jesus has pronounced a woe judgment upon most of the cities that saw his miracles, but they did not believe. Jesus prays to his father toward the end of the chapter, and he acknowledges that his father is sovereign over all things. But look at Matthew 11, verse 28. And I want you to hear this. Everybody here, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You're you're burdened. You're, 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 you're heavy, you're, you're weighed down. And Jesus said, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. What a gospel invitation. What an invitation to those who are burdened, to those who are wearied, to those who are struggling, to those who are worldly, to those who are self-righteous, to those who are trying to get to God by their goodness. Come to Jesus. And it's also a good word for all of us every day. Keep coming to this Jesus. Learn from him. He is gentle, he is humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls in this Savior. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you come to Christ? Have you found rest for your soul? It doesn't mean that you're going to have a pain-free life. It doesn't mean that you're going to have no more trials. God never promises that. But he says that all the burdens and all the weariness of of you trying to get to God on your own and the temptations of this world to trust in yourself, you can rest fully in Christ. Just like God promised rest In the promised land, and God rested from his creation on the seventh day, you can rest your soul in Christ, in salvation. And one day, hallelujah, 
you and I can rest our souls in Christ in the kingdom age to come. That's Hebrews 3. I mean, that's what the author is doing. Back to Hebrews 3, he said that we must consider Jesus. He is better than Moses. We must hold fast to him. Therefore, if you hear God's voice from Psalm 95, don't harden your hearts. I suppose it might be appropriate at this point to to even go a little bit farther. Maybe someone's here in this place this afternoon and you've not come to Christ. And you're still in your sin. And you have no rest for your soul. None. Boys and girls, maybe it's you. Men and women, maybe it's you. I mean, do do you need more reasons to come to Christ? Do do you need me to to compel you to come? Do you you need more motivations? Do, Do you need me to take you by the hand and persuade you to come to Christ? I'll give you some reasons. Today, if you're outside of Christ, you must come to Christ because the Bible commands it. The God of heaven and earth who made you commands you to come to him. Today, you must come to Christ, second of all, because God is patient and he's calling you. He's patient and he's calling you. He is so long-suffering. He is so inviting and patient. Third, today you should come to Christ because Christ is willing and able to save you. One day, he'll be unwilling. That day when he rides on a white horse to judge his enemies. But today, today he is willing. Today he is able You should come to Christ today, fourth, because the Spirit of God can give you life. The Spirit of God who calls you and he draws you and he saves you and he regenerates you and he seals you by his almighty power. You should come to Christ because of the Spirit's great work. You should come to Christ, number five, because your life is short and your death is sure. Reminding students from St. Louis University of that this Thursday during their lunch hour. Your life is short and your death is near. Number six, you should come to Christ today because to reject this gospel is to ignite God's anger. It is to ignite and incur God's anger. And you should come to Christ, number seven, because eternal life is infinite joy and security. I mean, why, why would a non-believer not want that? What's Octor doing? Octor, the author of the text, is saying, don't be like faithless Israel. Don't be like them. But come. Come and rest your soul in this Savior. So if you look in your Bible at Hebrews 3, verse 1, what's the preacher doing? He wants you to consider Jesus. Fix your eyes upon him. Verses 2 through 6, why? Because he's better than Moses. He's better than the greatest position, prophet, title you could ever imagine. Jesus is better. Well, how do you know if you're his? Verse 6 ends, if you're holding fast. To him, if you're believing and trusting and clinging to him, if you're bearing fruit and abiding in him, that's the evidence that you know that you're his. 
But verse 7, congregation, today, if you hear the voice of God, don't harden your heart. Don't do it. Don't be like Israel of old when they were wandering in the wilderness and they tested God and they tried God and they knew about God, but they did not believe in him. And God was angry with them and God shut them out. Next week, we're going to come to the next verse. So what do we do? What do we do as a congregation of believers so that we don't harden our heart? How How do we resist that? How do we fight against that? Verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The Greek word is apostasy. Don't be an apostate. We'll talk about that next week. So what do we do? What do we do? What what must we do with one another? Look at verse 13. Encourage one another day after day. That's what we need to do. That's why the church is so vital. That's why the gathering of saints is so important. That's why mutual encouragement and edification is so important and essential. That's why discipleship is so key. Encourage one another. Not yearly, not monthly, day by day, day by day, as long as it is still called today so that you are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, how many people there are, aren't there, who are on the verge of receiving Jesus. It's almost like they've been at the front porch of entering into the household of God, but they've not walked in. They've not crossed the threshold. They've they've toyed with the idea. They've pondered it. They've thought about it. They've considered it. They've calculated it, but they still have not come all the way to Christ. What's so sobering is one day that pondering procrastination will become a wasted opportunity. How sad, how sad, how sad. It's like the angels who said in Genesis 19, hurry and escape out of Sodom. It's like Luke 19, 5, when Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. It's like Psalm 119, verse 160. I hurried and I did not delay to keep your commands. It's like Luke 14, 23, we go out and we compel sinners to come in so that God's house may be filled. There is an urgency to real Christianity. I mean, there's an immediacy to this. We're not just sort of going through life and coasting through life. Christianity, take heaven by force. We must worship Christ now. We must follow Jesus now. We must proclaim Christ now. We must believe upon him now. We must obey him now. We must pray to him now. We need to persevere now. We need to say yes to Jesus now. Octor is saying, don't be like faithless Israel. 
Act today. Hear and hold fast to Jesus by faith. Today. 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 Suppose, suppose that there were some men who were upstairs playing cards. Somebody shouts, look, the window is red. And what's all that shouting outside that I hear? And they hear it and it gets louder and they they hear the people outside saying, the house is on fire. The house is on fire. The house is on fire. And one of the friends upstairs says, oh, shuffle the cards again. It's okay. We have time. The voices outside get louder and they get louder and they get louder and it's more urgent. Fire! 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 And another one of the men playing cards says, it's okay. It's okay. I've got the key to the door that leads outside to the balcony. We can escape that way. It's okay. It'll be fine. Let's finish our game. And, And the other friend says, are you sure? The shouts get louder, and they get louder, and they get louder. Finally, the friend gets up, and he tries to unlock the door, but he realizes he has the wrong key. The windows are red. The shouts are louder. The shouts are fiercer. The shouts are more urgent. Are they going to go back to their card playing? Are they going to go back to their game? Absolutely not. And they labor and they run and they shout and they're exerting all of their energy to to open that door with all of their might, but they can't because it's too late. They waited. They heard the plea. They procrastinated. And then they died. Beloved friends, we have the key. We have the key, and the key is the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. And he tells you today is the day. Today, if you hear him, don't harden your heart. What's so dangerous is to think that you can put it off and then come to God whenever you want. But one day, one day that today will be over. And you'll be knocking at heaven's door. And you'll say, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he will answer, I don't know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. As Luke 13, 25 says, today, 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 don't harden your heart. As the Bible says, From the Apostle Paul, now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Never, ever forget the beautiful and wide and sweeping invitation from the Savior. Come to me. Come to me. And I will give you rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the urgency of the word. Thank you that it summons every single one of us to take inventory of our hearts, to make sure that 
We are hearing and obeying and listening to you from your word. Don't let there be one among us who remains hard-hearted. Don't let there be one from our number that is unbelieving. Don't let there be one from our number, children, teenagers, men, women, who remain unbelieving. O Spirit of the living God, Spirit of power, draw the unbelievers to yourself in a mighty working of your power, and even yet afresh for true believers, help us to come again to Christ and learn from him who is gentle and humble in heart. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the immediacy of the word. Today, today, today. This is the message for us. It's the message for our children. It's the message for those that we work with. It's the message for our neighbors. It's the message for those who are strangers that we see this week. Today, you need to respond to Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you would save many people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.